Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And this week, I'm still popping my cork with the lovely Martin Kemp, who's walking us through the decades of his life and sharing some of the many stories documented in his brilliant new book, Ticket to the World, My 80s Stories. Now, as you may have heard in part one, he grew up in pretty poor beginnings in Islington, London, but discovered a door to a better world and a cure for his crippling shyness when he joined a local drama club. Here was the first rung to a ladder of tumultuous success as he saw himself cast in many hit 1970s TV shows and was later to join his brother Gary in his band, which went on, of course, to become one of the greatest of its time. So let's rejoin him now, mid-80s, with chart success of plenty, having just fallen in love with the woman of his dreams. There's a brilliant anecdote that you share in the book where you'd gone round to Georgia. So you've got Shirley in the car. You've just moved out of home. You and Shirley are like the sensible people from the blitz yeah. scene. You've got a flat. Uh, nobody else has. George is a megastar, but still living with his, his mum, right? That's right, his mum and dad, yeah. And he'd gone round to drop a jacket off to him or something. And as she dropped it, the jacket off, he said, come in, come in, I've just written something. What, what was the song that he... Oh, it was Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Well, he went up, he said, come upstairs, I'll play it to you. And there was a strange moment because when... <laughs> When he said that, I thought, why didn't you play it to me the night before when we were round there, right? Because I'd left my jacket round there. And, and I thought, is he embarrassed about it or something? And so, so I go upstairs and he puts it on and I play it and I say all the right things. I say, yeah, great record, really nice. Love that. It's going to be huge. And I go back downstairs to the car and I, and I see Shirley waiting there and I look at her and I say, career's over. It's all done. <laughs> done and dusted. You better find something else, Shirley. It's terrible. <laughs> And it, I really couldn't see you it. You thought it it balls it up, he, basically. I thought he'd blown it. Yeah. yeah. With wake me up before you go go. But listen, it, it, I'm really pleased that I was wrong. <laughs> no, not just for him, but for Shirley as well. 
I mean, in amongst all of this time, I mean, the, the success that you were all enjoying is huge. It really is, because <clears throat> there was a lot going on. Steve Norman said that of all the people to become so famous, he worried for you because you were so shy. It yeah. wasn't a natural fit for you. And yet there you were, the cover of magazines, bedroom walls. How, how was life as a pin-up in the 80s? It, it, it's a weird thing, that. And the older I've got, the, the more I look at it, because... Because it wasn't fulfilling, you know. It wasn't like I was the one writing the songs or I was the one uh, doing these great kind of artistic things. I was just about getting by playing the bass guitar because uh, I wasn't that great, you know. When when I first saw Level 42 and Mark King playing bass guitar, I thought, oh, no, that's the end. <laughs> you know, they're going to ask me to do that. And I, and I know at the time I was asking the question to myself, you know, what am I doing? I'm, you know, I'm getting by on just the way I look. That's not, it's not enough. It wasn't fulfilling me at all, you know. And I didn't understand that when I was a kid, you know. And even today, you know, I think it's kind of strange, you know, in those early days, the way that my life went. And uh, I had a great time, don't get me wrong, you know, from the first week of having a hit record, you're flying around in Learjets going to different countries, you're having a great time. But for me, it was just like, what am I? I was always asking the question, yeah, what am I? I? Is it just the way that I look, that I'm on the cover of the magazines, or is that enough? You know, because it wasn't artistic, what I was doing. No, it was just you, who I was. I'm going to pick you off on the Learjet thing because there's a brilliant story that you put in the book about you and Duran Duran. The night before, so you get this... So, so Gary, with his newfound royalties, becomes yeah. a bit of a shopaholic on the old antiques front, right? And yeah, he's on the yeah. King's Road and he's buying antiques. And Bob Geldof, who lived in that neck of the woods, yeah. runs into him one day and says, I'm doing... I'm doing a record for the Ethiopian famine. And you guys hadn't really been checking in on the news. You weren't hugely aware of world events at that yeah. time, beyond record sales, We had right? no idea of world events yeah, at that okay. time. None whatsoever. Know. No, because we, well, we were living in the Spandau bubble. You yeah. know, this is the height of Spandau. It's, you know, this is 1985, which yeah. is Spandau were... Global touring, success. Yeah, touring the world, playing football stadiums. Yeah. You know, we were living inside this bubble yeah. that, you know, the most... You weren't news... aware that we'd invaded... There oh, was aware, you know, and we were aware of it, but we, there was the only news that you were getting at that point in 1985, if you moved, went into a hotel room, was CNN and Bobby Batista on CNN on a 10-minute loop. Yes. So all you would see is 10 minutes and then it would start again. And you had to save that 10 minutes for, for the evening to sit down with your dinner. <laughs> uh, and that's the most you could With your room see. service, because you couldn't go yeah, access yeah, too yeah. many fans. You had to save it. Yeah. So Bob comes up to Gary and he's like, look, I'm going to do this record. It's going to be like a quick... Paul has had this idea. Yeah. Paulie Yates is, is yeah. then wife. And, and, and Gary's like, yeah, 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 sounds great. Give us a call, right? Yeah. He saunters up the road. He runs into Simon Le Bon. And Simon's like, yeah, 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 give us a call. Count us in. Cut to the night before the recording, mm. which is at Trevor Horn Sarnwest Studios. Yeah. You're on a TV show in Germany with Duran Duran, who were your rivals at the time, yeah. right? Which you took quite seriously by, by oh, all yeah, accounts. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, chart rivals, everybody needs a rival, you know, yeah. because uh, I was quite pleased about the whole rivalry thing with Duran Duran. You know, it's kind of Beatles and Rolling Stones, Blur and Oasis. It's part of pop culture. That's what you ha we have. Didn't Simon say to you once, you've got Europe, we've got America? Yes. That's, <laughs> that's right. how yeah, you divided yeah. the world up. Yeah, yeah. John Instead, Taylor. Of course. John Taylor said John Taylor said that. And he's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we, and at that time, we did. 
that's how it works. Anyway, Bob came to us with this idea about Band-Aid. And like you said, we were in Germany. So we said to Duran Duran, OK, well, let's get back to uh, Sun West for 8 o'clock in the morning. You know, we've been on a heavy night out. We both get in our separate planes. And even the flight back became a race. It was who could land first. But didn't you then book a private jet because you'd heard they'd got a private jet? Yeah. Is that what happened? So yeah, you, yeah. you even everything competed on that? Everything is a race. There was competition in everything we did with Duran Duran. Anyway, Bob came up with the idea with Band-Aid and said to us, get to Sam West early in the morning and we're going to record this charity record, uh, which it was the first of its kind, or it had been for years you know, uh, and the most I ever saw of any band was in the corridor of Top of the Pops. And then you didn't talk to them, you know. So it was kind of first time this had happened and um, got bands together. And like I said, Spandau was so in their own bubble at that time that we got to Sun West in Notting Hill. And there were all the kids outside, they were screaming and shouting, wanted to, your autographs and stuff. It was uh, huge, right? It was the it news was, was covering it. Yeah, yeah, the news yeah. was covering it, covering it. And then one of the news reporters stopped Steve Norman, the sax player in our band, and he said to Steve, Steve, have you got anything you can say for the poor people of Ethiopia? And Steve looks at him and he goes, yeah, I'd just like to say... Sorry we couldn't get down there this year, but we're trying to next year. Oh, no, good <laughs> not. And I love that, right? And I love that because <laughs> it just shows how out there we were. You know, out of touch. Out of touch, you know. We were in our own bubble. I know one thing was that you wanted to compete with Duran Duran on every level, so they had, like, a glam squad waiting for them at Heathrow. Yeah. And you were a bit knocked about that because they thought to get their hair and makeup done before they got to Sun West. Of course. And then you, didn't you book some big bougie Bentley or something to arrive in, which was completely oh, badly yeah, read? Oh, yeah, of course. Because, yeah, because that's how Spandau used to travel all the time. Really? You know? But when we get to Notting Hill, Sun West, you know, I think... Banana Rama get out of a Volkswagen, right? Yeah. And uh, um, Paul Weller walks, yeah. right? Spandau turned up in this great big fuck off Bentley. You know, the one, the one the Queen would arrive in. We get it completely wrong, completely. But, it, you know, when I look back at those days, right, I love it because it kind of, like, shows that for a while our feet got to leave the planet. You know, I spent... All my years in school, just dreaming and dreaming of being a rock star, being a, wanting to be in The Who, wanting to be in The Rolling Stones. And all of a sudden it happened. And there were probably three years that Spandau's feet left the planet. And I love that. I love it. And I'm glad that I did it. And I'm glad that I didn't know what was going on in the rest of the world and because uh, I was living out this complete fantasy. dream. It was a fantasy. <laughs> it was my fantasy that became a reality. Uh, so I'm really pleased the way that we lived. You know, we, we like you said, we were five boys that went to Benidorm for 10 years. We made the most of it. You yeah, know, you we went through the whole gambit. We wrecked hotel rooms. We, we did everything that you're meant to do as a rock star. Everything. Uh, and I'm glad I went through that. So when you get to Sun West Studios and you see um, how other people are arriving, I think, you know, like, I think even Sting walked there himself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Sting walked. Yeah. <laughs> and you get inside and George is there, right, York, yeah. And he says to you, oh, these lyrics are a bit shit. Well, he did like it. <laughs> he did like the song. You know, he, he, 
I'll rephrase it. He liked the song and he liked the melody. He thought the lyrics were really depressing. Because you've got to remember at the time, you know, Yogg's writing uh, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, right? Club Tropicana. Uh, And he said to me, I I think it's all too depressing. He said, I don't think it'll work. Um, But listen, he was as wrong as I was wrong about Wake Me Up Before You (laughs) Go-Go. So uh, maybe uh, it was one all at that point. When you're stood in that room and... You're amongst your peers and the people that, you know, you'd raced back from Germany. What was that day like? Because that song still chimes every year. It's it's done so much good. What was it like being in the heart of, of that room and that moment? It was very different. Because, like I said, you know, uh, bands never used to mix in those days. Mm. You know, festivals were the, the realm of heavy rock bands. You never got festivals where pop bands were playing mm. in the, back in the day. So being in a room with all those bands together, people that you never mixed with but were your chart rivals, was very strange. And uh, it was kind of like tense at the beginning. Uh, until people kind of like broke the ice and started talking uh, and started singing together. I think Tony was the first one to go and record his vocal. Got no day. pressure, Tone. Yeah, and he did an absolutely amazing job it's of great it. great vocalist. And, uh, and, sent, and set the kind of level where it should be at until, the, uh, you know, bon- Bono went in and, you know, killed everybody off. Yeah. What about the fact that Boy George was supposed to be there and Bob, right? Bob was a force. Bob makes stuff yeah. happen, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And Bob's going, right, the rest of Culture Club are there. Where's George? Where was George? I don't know. Where was George? He was in bed in New York. Oh, yes, he was. Yes, right, yeah. So he, he gets yeah. on the phone to him and George gets yeah. on Concord yeah, to yeah. make it back to That's lay his right. vocals that night. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And uh, he did it, but, I mean, that was George, you know, at the time. You know, he... Uh, George, at that point, wasn't in the best of spaces. He was on a lot of drugs. Yeah, he was on a lot of drugs. So, And he will tell you that as well, mm. you know. Uh, so it was drugs that was ruling his life, not Bob Geldof at the time. But, uh, listen, he got there in the end and he did it and he made a great job of what he did. So, uh, I mean, it was kind of a, that picture of all of us sitting there that we took during Band-Aid. It kind of, like, was... Uh, it kind of represented that period in pop, didn't it? Yeah. You know, it was all the big bands of that time were there. As we traverse through the 80s, obviously professionally, life could not have been better, but also personally, you and Shirley had really hit your stride. Did you get married in the 80s? Is that when you sealed the deal? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll be really honest with you, you know, it was Shirley's idea to get married. I didn't ever think that marriage was important for me, right? I loved Shirley as much as I could. I didn't think, believe that marriage was going to make it any better. You know, I just thought it would, it didn't mean that much. But it meant something to Shirley. And uh, we were living in Dublin at the time. And I was uh, doing, uh, uh, which was awful couple of years, I was doing a tax year, you know, where you were. So, so at the time, just to explain to people, you were paying 60 pence in every pound yeah, yeah. to the government. Yeah, yeah, 65 pence yeah. in every pound, yeah. practically. And then you had to pay your agents on top of that. Yeah. So basically, you were earning 20 pence yeah. in, every pound in every pound that you were earning. So, so you had to change that. You couldn't so carry you went with to Dublin. That. We ended up going there for a couple of years because we were meant to go out on tour. You know, we were meant to go out on tour the world during this yeah. tax year. And so the first gig we go out, we play San Francisco, and Steve Norman tears a ligament in his knee. No! So we, we have, we're still doing this tax year, and 
we have to find somewhere to go. So we go to Dublin. And we stayed there, which but I Shirley's like, Shirley's touring the world with Wham at this yeah, point, yeah, right? at the time, She yeah. can't come and keep you company. No, absolutely. So I'm stuck out in Dublin on my own. And, but Shirley would come to visit me every weekend. And then one weekend, Shirley comes out and we are in Grafton Street. And we walk past this old jeweller's and it's still there. I saw it just the other week when I was in Dublin. Ah. And uh, Shirley took my hand and she pulled me into the jeweller's and said, I want that one. And it was the engagement ring, uh, and uh, which I was more than happy. I was absolutely delighted with. But it was just, it was Shirley who took the lead on it. I'm so thrilled that she did, you know. Yeah. And, you know, there she is handling a, a madly successful career in her own right, which was quite unusual at the time. Yeah. But secretly, the moment that Shirley found out she was pregnant, yeah. that was it for her. She, she felt like she'd done her, her yeah. time of touring and she wanted to be a mum. Listen, Shirley was burning with motherhood she needed it more than anyone i've ever seen anything oh. in my life you know but shirley um suffered really badly from endometriosis she she couldn't get pregnant uh, i think this is after about three or four years right um shirley and i went out to st lucia and we decided to get married we've been, we've been engaged for probably three three years by then we decided to get married there and then on this cliff top which just to this day, I still don't believe I'm married legally. Right? <laughs> it was literally one person. Legally. One person who said, Martin, do you love Shirley? Shirley, do you love Martin? You're married. That was, was it, just it the was two of you? It was literally that, yeah, literally. Is that uh, really your wedding? Yeah, practically. And it was on a beautiful clifftop overlooking the Caribbean. It was lovely, you know. It's all I wanted. Because a few years before that, my brother had got married to Sadie Frost. Yeah. And uh, I was the best man. And it, all the arguments that were going on about who was sitting where and who yeah. was sitting next to the cake, it was like, <laughs> you know... It was bizarre. So I said to Shirley, right, we'll, you know, this is it. You know, we're, we're on our own when we get married. And so there was Shirley and I on this beautiful clifftop overlooking the Caribbean. And we go back to the room. And Shirley had been trying now to get pregnant for probably three years. And on our wedding night, she conceived. Oh, she conceived Harley. Harley, which uh, just shows you whatever it was being relaxed or 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 just ah, yeah isn't that lovely yeah no matter what it was i don't care we ended up with harley which is lovely the greatest gift of all yeah yeah so by the time we reach the end of the 80s things are about to change significantly right yeah the cray twins yeah suddenly become a huge feature in your life in a really good way i don't know many people that can say that <laughs> so let's turn our attention to yeah. the 90s <laughs> a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. my third and final question. I want to talk to you about the 90s, which was a decade that brought you possibly your greatest highs and also your biggest challenges. So, was it 89 that you were cast as the, the, the Cray Twins? It was 89 when, uh, when uh, we were cast as the Cray Twins. But it, was, it took its toll on the band that, because for a year before, people were talking about us that we were going to get those parts and we were going to make those movies because it was the two guys that used to produce all those expensive travelogue videos for the band were the guys that had the rights to the Kratom film. So it was kind of... They were talking to us about the, being in the, in the movie. Yeah. Um, and obviously there's only... Two twins and there's five band members of Spanda. Exactly. Yeah. So it took its toll and I, and I remember... Um, the other guys weren't happy with it. And I understand why, you know, because at the time they were frightened of what was going to happen. You know, could this be the end of the band? Yeah. Because we all saw by then, by the end of the 80s, that the band was past its sell-by date. You know, we were selling fewer and fewer records every time. We were going out and playing to less and less people uh, on those tours. That's hard, right? That's a yeah. really hard situation to oh, confront yeah. and face but up it, to. But it, but it happens to every yeah, band. Yeah, of course. Uh, and I remember uh, Gary and I being in... This is about 87, uh, 88. And uh, Gary and I going down to some Bournemouth to see my mum and dad. And Gary and I were walking on the beach, sandbanks. Uh, and it was a cold kind of Sunday morning. And Gary turned around to me and said, I, that's it, I don't want to make any more records. I'm, I'm finished with the band. I can't carry on. I want to make my own stuff. And I begged him and pleaded with him to make one more record, you know, because I was scared, because I yeah. didn't know what was going to happen, where I was going to go afterwards. But it, looking back on it now, it was a mistake. You, you know, think? we should have called it a, a day before yeah. that last album. We used to write music in the way that Gary would bring in an acoustic guitar and then everybody would make their own parts up and, and that's how the band would come together and that's how we would produce the records. But by that point, Gary was making his own demos and saying, this is how you have to play it. These, copy this so bit. It changed, on the this, dynamic changed. On this demo, dynamic changed completely. And Gary will tell you as well, you know, he was becoming more and more domineering in the way that the band was running. He, you could see that Gary was the leader of the band, where before it had all been shared kind of amongst all of us. So by that time, we get to make this video for Raw, one of the tracks, and uh, I think we Gary is talking to Tony, and I can see it all kicking off. I can see the pair of them having an argument. And I go over and I said, what's it all about? And it's about that Gary had said to Tony, where are those jeans from? <laughs> are they Marks and Spencer's? <laughs> and, and Tony said, no, they're from Gap. 
And that was it. It was the end of the band. Over they, that? Yeah, they kicked off. But it wasn't really about that. Of course it, it wasn't. It wasn't about that. It was about everything. The end of the band was about the Kratwin film. It was about that our sell-by date had run out. It was about the end of everything. You know, our friendship... It was a perfect storm. Being, yeah, and friendship being come to, coming to a point where it was all so tense uh, because we'd been living with each other non-stop for 10 years. We'd had... If you think about bands, that to get 10 years' worth of success is really unusual. You know, even a Beatles only lasted for six years. Especially at that level. Yeah, at that level. You know, and it's really yeah, difficult. Yeah. So it wasn't the genes that split the band up. It was everything. Duran Duran versus Spandau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. versus Yeah, it was Gap. everything. <laughs> so when the movie came about, did you know? Did you have a feeling that this was going to be exciting? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I saw the... Uh, well, yeah, first of all, you know, when it came, the offer came to me and Gary, it wasn't kind of like we were nervous about it because... We'd had all those years of training with Anna Schur, you know, and being that young and learning something like acting when you're young, it becomes part of you. It becomes part of your personality. So it wasn't like a fear of, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm going to have to go out there and act. It was because I already knew that I could do it. Mm -hmm. I had all those years of, of uh, comedy playhouse and play for today and all of that CV that was like... 30 television shows long when I was... By the time I was, like, 15. So I knew... Me and Gary both knew that we could do it. Uh, and the first thing we did when we got the offer was to go back to Anna Schur and ask Anna to give us a few lessons. Did you? Yeah. How lovely. And the first thing we, we did, which was an incredible call, she, Anna said to us, all right, I want you to get on the floor because she knew what we'd been through, the band had been through. We knew me and Gary had fallen out and got back together 20 times over the past 10 years, you know. And uh, she said, I want you to get on the floor and make out you're pushing your toy cars around your mum's carpet, right? I want you to be three and five years old. And so Gary and I are on the floor <laughs> making out we're pushing these cars around, making all the sounds. But what that did, you know, was like I looked into my my brother's eyes and we were back there we were back at three and five and all those years of arguing and and all what the, we'd been through in the band and trying to be rock stars and, and all of that you know yeah. breaking up hotel rooms disappeared <laughs> and it was back to being me and gary very smart much, of her to do that yeah and how much we loved each other and i think that moment for me is one of the most important moments oh. in mine and Gary's relationships. Uh, and I, I, I bet you, if you ask Gary that question, he'll say the same thing as well. How and, uh, brilliant that she sort of bookended such important times in your relationship as well. Yeah. Just something as simple as that. What yeah. that did for us going into the Cray Twin movie, it just gave us a new grounding. Yeah. And it made us understand. Yeah, it was a reset. And um, it made us understand who we were. And I think we took that with us through that film. So Gary and I, when we got that script, and everybody who was around at that point knew that it was a great script. It wasn't, you know, you would, it would have been harder to mess that script up. Um, every actor in Britain wanted to play those parts. And and you wanted those parts, right? There was no, oh, yeah. there's no. Oh, absolutely. Doubt well, in your mind. I, I wanted a part. I, I knew that it was the springboard into the next part of my life. Yeah. I knew that I was never going to be 
a, a musician that would start another band. I knew that. I wasn't a great enough musician. And how old were you at this point? Uh, 90, I would have been about 29. So that's still 28. a very young man. Yeah, a very yeah. young man. So you really need a bit like a footballer coming to the end of his playing years. What oh, am yeah. I going to do next? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But but the Cray Twins was that that movie and that script was the springboard into the next part of my life, and I knew that. And uh, we made it, and it was successful. And uh, not just not just box office wise, but credibility wise as well. Critically acclaimed. Uh, critically, it was it was. Uh, well, Hollywood came calling, really right? Well you moved your entire life to Los Angeles. <clears throat> yeah, because you yeah. knew that there was an appetite for more from you. Yeah, and that's where you and Shirley. Uh, well, that's. Yeah. Where, where, did she give birth in LA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roman. Yeah, he was yeah. born in uh, Cedar Sinai. So yeah, yeah. so you, you start life there with a really young family. Yeah. Buzzing chapter two. Let's oh, go. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I was uh, while I was out there, I was working as an American. You know, American accent. I was, um, I was. Just, I was making terrible films, but that's beside the point. <laughs> you know, my brother was making. Got kiss Gar and Gary, Gary was making really nice ones like The Bodyguard and stuff. Yeah, he was in The Bodyguard. Yeah, he was in The Bodyguard, and uh, but I was making tons of like C-list movies. But I didn't mind it. You know, I was out there. I was working underneath the Hollywood sign, and the sun was out, and uh, the kids and was, were in the pool. Everyone's the kids were in the pool, and I was working all the time. So, and but what I was really, really pleased about, I was working as a, an American. So uh, my life had changed and I, was, I absolutely loved my time in Hollywood. So you start the 90s with great promise. The middle of the 90s brings a diagnosis that stops everything. Yeah. Everything. To the point that you have to literally reset yourself yeah. physically, emotionally, mentally. I mean, it's a brain tumour. Yeah, yeah. It was... Uh, it was the strangest thing when I found out I, I had it because I was working in Canada and uh, I was doing this show called The Outer Limits, uh, which is kind of like sci-fi horror. And so I was in Vancouver and I was playing this scientist that invented everlasting life. And instead of that, because it's, you know, sci-fi horror, it all goes wrong and I start deteriorating at a much faster rate. So uh, on the last scene of the day, I'm in makeup and they have to pull this bald cap on my head and little wispy grey hairs. And as they pull the bald cap on, I, all I remember is that the whole of the makeup wagon go quiet and they're looking at the back of my head that's got this lump on it. And the lump... I knew it was there, I could feel it, but it was bone. It wasn't a soft lump like you would, you know, associate yeah. with a, the, anything that was tumour-wise. It was a big lump of skull that was starting to grow out of shape. And so I flew back home the next day and went straight to the doctor and they x-rayed it and they found a brain tumour that was underneath the skull uh, that had been there for about 12 years. And it was the size of a grapefruit. Uh, and it was, if you imagine uh, all of that tumour being squashed in the gap between your skull and your brain, and it had no more room to move. So as it started to grow out... It was moving the shape it of your was, skull. Well, the skull was protecting itself. You know, like when you break your arm, you get yeah. a little bit of extra calcium on top, yeah, yeah. Um, on the crack. Um, and the brain was doing that. It was starting to thicken to protect itself. And it was thickening really fast. So 
they called me into the hospital and they said, tomorrow you're on the operating table. And I was there for 12 hours and they cut that out. But what, what happened was while they cut that one out, they found a second one that was deep inside my head. That they couldn't operate on. <clears throat> they wouldn't have known it was even there. if It would have been too late by the time they found out it was there. So when I think back to that brain tumour, that huge one that I had, it was re absolutely the luckiest thing that has ever happened to me. If you hadn't got that part wearing a skull cap on that day, who's to say yeah. that you would have given it the attention it needed? Yeah, 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 yeah. Would uh, you be sat here now saying, look at my kids, I've watched oh them grow goodness. up? Yeah, but, but not only that, you know, you, it makes you realise how fragile life mm. is, you know. But, you know, I remember the moment... I wake up out of the, the operation and they say to me, um, right, we're just doing a biopsy on it to find out what it is. Is it malignant or, ma or benign? Uh, and that moment is a real flip of the coin. It makes you understand how fragile, you know, they could have come back to me and said, yeah, there's nothing we can do. But they never, they said, it's benign, we can deal with it, we want to give the second one ra radiation and see how you get on with that. Um, and I was lucky. I had the radiation and within six months, the second tumour that was sitting in the middle of my head started to shrink. And um, it's still there today, but it's tight. It's like a pea and it's dead. I mean, that's probably the toughest of times I can imagine that you've ever had to kind of fight your way through as... As a man, you know, as a human being, as a husband, as a father, but then also as a professional, right? You have... Well, yeah. You've got to restart on every level. Well, yes, yes, but when you're in the middle of that yourself, it's, you don't, you're just fighting this battle mm. to get out the other side, to come out the other side. When you come out of it, you realise the effects that it's had on everybody around you. And you realise it's my family and Shirley and everybody else that have been through the worst time. They were sitting there every day waiting for the call that I've died. Mm. Um, and for them, it was harder, I think, you know, because well, I, was, I was in the hospital for, for weeks on end. I was, most of the time, I was off my head on drugs and couldn't think straight. I was just in the middle of a battle, uh, digging myself out of a hole. Uh, but for Shirley, she was watching me die. Oh, that's what she thought. Uh, and it was much harder for her. Well, she was actually fighting to keep you alive yes. because she was yeah, she a was. dog with a bone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she wouldn't stop until she yeah, found the yeah. right doctors. Yeah, yeah. With George helping her, actually. Yeah, wasn't George it? and Shirley got together and uh, uh, and searched the world, literally, phoned around the world to get the right doctor to look at the, the brain tumour that I had. And the, the doctor one. was where? And uh, it was in Bart's, Bart's Hospital, that London. was literally just up the road from me. Yeah. Which is a good job because I couldn't afford the fare at the time anyway. <laughs> but 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 listen, it was um, it was an experience in my life that uh, I've learned a lot from. But everybody, the question always is, so do you look at life differently? You know, and I've got to tell you, you know, after about a year, you don't. Your body wants you to get back into normal life, but your body doesn't want to remember that. No. It doesn't. You can't it's like spend holding trauma. You can't spend your life looking through rose-tinted glasses. That's not how the world works, you know. Well, if, if you thought that it was all going to end tomorrow, you'd be in a constant state of anxiety. Yeah. That's no good either, right? Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. But but my brain was completely messed up after it. You know, if I wanted to, if I wanted to walk left, I would walk right. If I saw the door to the toilet over that side of the room, 
I'd go to the other side of the room. Really? My brain was upside down. I couldn't remember things. I couldn't remember people's names. I couldn't, I couldn't think straight. So and it was like a plug that had had all the wires put back in yeah, correctly. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, well, what it was, like loads of the wires in my inside my brain had been cut and squashed. So as the tumour grew down and thickened, it squashed all parts of my brain that I was wow. using. So, so it took me six months to get over it physically. But then mentally it took me a good couple of years mm. to get over it. And the first thing that came along professionally and work-wise was EastEnders. And uh, when that came along, everybody was saying to me, don't touch it, you mustn't go near it. You know, because at that time, no big actors, no actors with any kind of CV had gone into EastEnders. Right? Especially just been, with a Hollywood CV. Yeah, it had just been a cast of people that, that started the show. So everyone was saying no to me, but I knew that it was the only way that I could get myself together. And when I went up for the first audition, I couldn't even remember my lines because my brain wasn't working. It wasn't working properly at that point. So I messed up the first audition because I just couldn't remember it. But luckily enough, the guys there, they gave me a second chance. So I went back in for the second audition. And then, you know, I was there for three and a half years. Steve Owen was a huge character. I mean, people really, really believed you as Steve Owen to the point that some bloke punched you in the stomach and said, that's because I hate Steve Owen. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. And he thought it was of, okay to do that yeah, to you in the street. The, the middle of Tottenham Court Road. You know, <laughs> Tottenham Court Road? Yeah, took, took the wind out of me completely. <laughs> but you have to remember at that point, you know, EastEnders was getting something like 20 million people Huge. an episode watching it. So it was in everybody's life. I had never, in all of my years in Spandau Ballet, had never felt fame like I did in EastEnders. It's funny that, isn't it? Because I think... You know, pop music is built around a certain bandwidth, a certain age width that you get from, like, yeah. 15 to 35, yeah. right, that listen to those pop stations on the radio and stuff and, and buy those magazines. EastEnders was playing from everyone from, like, 10-year-old kids to 90-year-old women. Yeah. And so it was... The fame was much, much bigger. Uh, and it was something that... It was hard to live with, but it was... It was a lot of fun at the time, you know. But you wouldn't... I don't know that you'd want that forever, though, would you? Not at all, not at all. You know, it's a funny thing, you know, the older I've got, the more I accept it, you know. During uh, EastEnders, I was kind of hiding away all the time, you know. I find it hard to go out of my house. I, every time I went out of my house, I wore sunglasses and a baseball cap, and I found it really difficult to live with. But the older I've got, and I, you realise that most people just want to say hi. And... Yeah, and I think... You know, fame's something that if you don't accept it, it will it will drive you mad, you know, because it's bizarre. You know? and, and what do you... I mean, when you look at Roman, you obviously... I mean, listen, it's brilliant that he's flourishing in a business that we've yeah. both loved and enjoyed so much. But I also know as a parent, your anxieties must be high because it can also be very damaging. So how yeah. do you instill upon him the lessons that you've learned about don't give it more credence than it deserves. Don't let it be yeah. too important. Uh, we, 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 me and Roman have spoke about this a lot, you know. Um, I've always said to Roman that fame is a ticket to get a better job. Mm. That's all it is. 
You know, and the minute you start stepping outside of that, um, then you're in trouble. You've got to understand it's a ticket to get a better job. But you have to you have to see as well. Roman has been around the most famous people in the world. Rose saw the best of fame, and he also saw the worst of it. You know, uh, and uh, so Roman has had the right upbringing to be famous and to understand it. And when I talk to him, you know. Um, he he's a really nice guy, bro. He shares yeah. his fortune and he shares his luck and he shares kind of his personality with all of his friends, which is the right thing to do. Well, when I look at Roman now and I read the pages of your book, I think there he is. Right? He's got his own blitz scene going on. Yeah. And he's equipped to handle it because he's been brought into this world by two people that really knew how to handle themselves and take the very best from what can be a very dangerous business and just remain twinkly at the end of it. And not many people get to do that. And yeah. you have, and you're remarkable for it. And I oh, cannot wait to so take much. to the stage with you at the Palladium. And thank you so much for sharing so much of a life Incredibly well lived. <laughs> what? Yeah, too well lived. That's a problem. There's, there's got, I mean, listen, if, you've just done the book on the 80s. I want to read the 90s. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a, it's an amazing thing. You know, I wrote that book about the 80s because it was something like, if you, what I wanted to do was if you lived through the 80s, I wanted to bring back all your memories yeah. that, because it was such an incredible decade. But if you didn't, then I wanted to tell those guys what it was about. It's like an historical document for yeah. popular culture. So I wanted to tell my story, but I also wanted to tell the story of the 80s. Yeah. You know, it doesn't go into heavy political side of it, but it kind of hits on bits and pieces of but it. But it has to because so it much of what scene, pop you know. culture pushes back against the the politics of the time. Yeah. But you also touch on things like the Walkman, which was transformative yeah. for those of us that were yeah. there. Yeah, because, because everything changed here in the 80s. You know, it wasn't just... It wasn't just politically that everything changed, but technology everything. was growing at a rate of knots in the 80s. Like, like the, way that, the way that Spandau, for instance, you know, when we were the gentry before we started, it was all about guitar riffs. You know, it was all about what the guitar can play. Well, that changed but, quickly, right? Yeah, as soon as the 80s came along, everybody brought in the synthesizers mm. and you replaced the guitar riff with the synth riff. Yeah. And so, but the synth absolutely took over and it kind of set the stall out for the 80s. And as the synths grew, bands grew as well. A couple of years in, you had bands like Trevor Horn producing ABC, yeah. who their sound, today, if you put that on in a club, still sounds as bright and as new yeah. as ever because technology was changing at a rate of knots. Yeah. In the same time that music magazines was changing, in the same time that bands were changing, in the same time that all the politics was sitting in place, and things, everything in the 80s was, was, seemed to be larger than life, you know, because it had come from the 70s. So it was, it was a wonderful decade to grow up in, and that's kind of like... I think the reason I wanted to document it, because it, for me it just felt like, it felt like black and white was turning into colour. Anyway, well, listen, you, you literally have poured that colour onto the page. Oh, I really loved it. Wonderful. I really loved it. And I hope that your kids will read it and my kids will read it. Thank you. And th that we, rem yeah, and that we start to celebrate the people that were so seminal of, yeah. in, in that scene. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you for Not today. Not at all. My pleasure. Always fun talking to you. A huge heartfelt thanks to Martin Kemp. And don't forget, you can get his book, Ticket to the World, My Eight History, wherever you buy your books. 
and you can join us as we host the greatest hits party at the London Palladium on November the 25th. Tickets are available at greatesthitsradio.co.uk. And if you're in the mood for a top-up and fancy more great chat, then take a scroll through our back catalogue where you'll find episodes with Martin Sun, Roman, fellow 80s superstars from the Blitz Club, Banana Rama, Danny Minogue's in there, Lisa Stansfield, or if the 90s are more of your thing, then we've got Steps, Hanson, All Saints, Charlene Spatiri and Gary Barlow. My thanks to you, as always, for your company and to Maria Nibs and the Yahoo Studios team who produced the show with me. Editing is by Eleanor Humphrey and our music is courtesy of Andy Bell, a star of the 90s, noughties and then some. You can check out his solo material as well as his work with Ride and Oasis wherever you get your music. We'll see you next Friday. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.